want to say welcome again to those of you who are worshiping with us for the first time, be it at home, be it here in person. We are delighted you have chosen Hope Church to worship uh, this morning with us. My name's Kevin. I am the pastor around these parts, and we have been in the midst of a series all on the very light topic of forgiveness. Really light, right? Now I want to ask you the question. Have you ever had it when someone apologized to you and you just knew they didn't mean it? I would love to hear from you. Uh, Give me your best, your best, uh, how can you say, non-meaning sorry. So I want you to all say sorry to me as if you don't mean it. What would it sound like? Wow. Wow. Yeah, that was, that was good in a bad way, right? (laughs) That was really good in a bad way. Like, yeah, yeah, so there's the sorry, right? Or like we talked about last week when your mom makes you apologize, so it's like, sorry. Or I noticed the longer the word sorry gets, the less authentic it is. Like, sorry. I don't think he meant that. (laughs) Just a hunch. (laughs) Doesn't sound too heartfelt. Yeah, you can smell an insincere apology a mile away, can't you? Oh my goodness, you can smell it. It's the tone, it's the expression, the quality of the apology. Maybe it doesn't like arise to like the wrongdoing that was done. Like maybe like something major happened to you and it's like, hey, I'm sorry about that. Hold up. I mean, you just like ran over my cat and that's all you got? The problem is when we receive an inauthentic apology, it doubles down on the pain that was already caused, doesn't it? It's like, you're not sorry at all. You don't even recognize the pain you actually caused me or the hardship or the heartache. Let's think about the flip side, though. How can you tell when someone comes and apologizes and it's authentic, that they really mean it? A lot of times, they usually show you they want to make it right. There's some kind of action that, sh- that, that comes along with that apology that shows that they understand that they hurt you in some way. There's some sign of a repentant heart, right? Uh, think of the difference between someone who says, you know, I'm a, I want to apologize if I hurt you in any way. You ever hear that one? Maybe you've said that one. I think I've said it before, unfortunately. If I hurt you in any way, I want to apologize. What kind of garbage apology is that? You did hurt me. Please acknowledge it. What about this? I am so sorry for how I hurt you. Is there any way you could forgive me? This is how I want to make it up and make it right. There's a big distance between those two, isn't there? We're talking about reconciliation today and how it interacts with forgiveness. We're going to try and figure out, is reconciliation necessary or not within the forgiveness journey? But first, we have to get an understanding of what reconciliation even is. Uh, So basically, to, to reconcile something, it's to make right. It's to put it right, to make it right and good again. So let's go to God's Word. We're going to read from Psalm 103. Our focus is really two verses, but I'm reading the whole psalm because, my goodness, this is better than anything I can say on my own. This is a powerful, powerful psalm. And so 
if you don't listen to anything else, listen to the word of God, okay? And I trust you will be blessed by it. This psalm, it's all about God's great love for us. And what God does for us reveals what he is really like. And so consider this psalm framed around this concept of forgiveness. Hear now the true word of the Lord from Psalm 103. Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart, I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things that he does for me. He forgives all of my sins. He heals all of my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord gives righteousness and justice to all who are treated unfairly. He revealed his character to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. He is slow to get angry. He is filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us, nor will he remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the heights of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. Our days on earth are like grass, like wildflowers. We bloom and we die. The wind blows and we are gone, as though we had never been here before. But the love of the Lord... That remains forever with those who fear him. His salvation extends to the children's children of those who are faithful to his covenant, of those who obey his commandments. The Lord has made the heavens his throne. From there he rules over everything. Praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who carry out his plans, listening for each of his commands. Yes, praise the Lord, you armies of angels who serve him and do his will. Praise the Lord, everything he has created, everything in all his kingdom. Let all that I am praise the Lord. Amen. It's powerful, isn't it? I mean, we could just call it a day, right? But I'm on the clock for another half hour. I only work an hour a week. I got to make it count. (laughs) Glad you can laugh with me. I wanted to read that whole thing because it's so good and it does intertwine with what we're talking about today. But I want to refocus us uh, around verses 10 and 12 where it was talking about God separates us from our transgressions. So this is what it says again. He does not punish us for all of our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him 
is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Now, I'm, a, I'm of a younger generation than perhaps a couple of you out there, right? And I grew up like, what is this fear of the Lord business? I was very confused. And I know many of you grew up with a, a healthy understanding of it, but I, I didn't quite understand. But, you know, I figured it out. I want to share it with those of you who maybe are a little younger than me, if you don't know, or those of you who just don't understand. And the idea of the fear of the Lord is a holy reverence of a holy and almighty and an all-loving God, where, where we recognize the distance between us and his holiness. And so there's a healthy fear there. It's not a scary fear where we're afraid of him, but we acknowledge his power. We acknowledge his might. We acknowledge that he is so amazing and so able to do anything. We say that's the fear of the Lord, but you could say it's kind of the reverence, a holy reverence of the Lord. And so we read here his unfailing love towards those who fear him. It's as great as the height of the heaven above the earth. And that God doesn't treat us as our sinfulness deserves. Oh my heavens, that is good news. And it is through the incredible work of Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice on the cross. Through that, God has taken our sin and put it on the shoulders of Jesus. So when it comes to forgiveness, God does not just simply withhold his anger from us. He does not just simply give us a pass. He separates us from our sins. He uses this beautiful image of removing our offense from us as far as the east is from the west. Does anyone know the calculation of how far the east is from the west? Infinite. Yeah. You hear that and it's like, this is one of those math word problems I never could get, right? How far is the east from the west? Yeah, it's a poetic way of saying that when God forgives, he places an infinite gulf between our wrongdoings and us. That's amazing to sit in that truth. Because God forgives us totally, repeatedly, and lavishly. Not because he has to, but because he is good. And he loves us. That's how Jesus came to reconcile humankind and God. Because we recognize that God is holy. And because God is holy, he despises and detests sin. Sin is everything that God is not, is incompatible with a holy and pure God. But because God is good, he came close to us in the filth of our sin. And because he is just, in his justice, he proclaimed that the penalty of sin, everything he is not, it is death. But in his mercy, he took that penalty upon himself. And in his everlasting power, he then took that sin to the grave and he left it there for all who call upon him as Lord and Savior. That's how Jesus made things right between humans who are sinful by nature and a holy and perfect God. 
He puts sin to death. He raises us to new life. That's what we celebrate in baptism is that we die to our old self. We die to our sin and we rise in our new life and our new life in Christ. He forgives us fully and completely. And that's why Jesus's ministry is often referred to as a ministry of reconciliation. Because he came to make things right between humans and God. Have you ever played the role of a mediator between two people who are in a fight? How'd that turn out for you? <laughs> that is a rough place to be, isn't it? You have maybe your, your friends are fighting, right, about who knows what, anything. <laughs> I mean, there's been nothing this past year that would cause any arguments, right? None come to mind. Or maybe family members, maybe your mom and dad or your kids. It's an incredibly difficult work to try and reconcile relationships or to be a mediator. It's never easy. It's almost guaranteed to be messy. But out of the mess is the opportunity for beauty. And that's what happened when Jesus came and made things right between a holy God and a sinful people. He did this for his unfailing love toward those who revere him. It's as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. It's another beautiful way of saying it is infinite, his love for you. And his forgiveness with you, it is so complete that he has separated your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. God does not identify you by your sin. Think about how you view yourself. Think about the words you use to describe yourself. You might have some personality traits you say, but you might also say those things you struggle with, right? God does not associate you or identify you by your sin. Once he forgives you, he separates it. He calls you, not sinner, he calls you by name, not by what you've done. He sees you as his child. He looks at you and says, you are my daughter. You are my son. With you, I am well pleased. Yeah, you were broken by sin, but since you called upon me and accepted my gift, you were put back together by the love of my son, Jesus Christ. And we give him thanks. And we also know Jesus didn't do this work of reconciliation so we can just keep on sinning, right? Paul has a beautiful passage all about that. We're not diving into that today. But no, the purpose of our forgiveness isn't to keep on sinning and not to change. It is uh, Jesus came so that we might experience the fullness of life and live out our salvation here and now on this side of eternity. And we know when Jesus had ascended into heaven, he gave us the great commission. And what was that commission but a way of charging us to continue his very ministry of reconciliation that he came to do here on earth? He called us to be his love, to be his hands and feet, and to bring his peace into this hurting and torn world. He charged us as his disciples to be the connecting point of love between God and humanity to point others to our all-loving God, to tell others what he has done for us, and to invite them into that truth and that beauty. 
That's what it means to seek his kingdom here on earth. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come. That is what we are longing for, for his love, for his ways, for his peace to become reality here on this side of heaven. Paul says it again in 2 Corinthians about this assignment we've been given. It says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. You hear that? Not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Because we have received it, we are longing to share it with everyone around us. But this is a broken world. We're put together in God's love, but we still grapple with sin and its effects. And we face hardships, don't we? We seek peace, but in a broken world, peace is often the exception, not the rule. Now, in this series, we've established that God has forgiven us. We know that if we ask for it. And because of that, we must forgive others. We've already deduced that's not a nice idea. It's actually a command from our holy God that because we have been forgiven, we must also forgive others. It's not another, like, um, stirring in frozen yogurt. That's a nice thing, right? Yeah, I think I'll have a little extra forgiveness in there. It's command from the one who has forgiven us. But we also know that forgiveness is both a decision and a process. We have to make the decision, but it's often a long and lengthy process where we have to constantly combat our own resistances to that process, whether it is our bitterness or our pride, our fear or our judgment. We did some soul work on that last week. But this is our question today, is seeking reconciliation with those who have wronged us, necessary? Must we have some kind of interaction with every single person that we've wronged or has wronged us? Is that necessary? There's not one specific clear-cut answer in the Bible for that, but that's often not how we find our answers in God's truth. We can deduce a good sense of what God desires for us in our interactions with people. So let's look at that together. We're going to start in Romans 12. We're going to go through a few different verses together. But Paul wrote this in Romans 12, and it's talking about living at peace. So this is what he says. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he is thirsty, you give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You guys like that heap burning coals on his head part? That's the one I'm like, that doesn't seem to fit there. <laughs> what you're saying. Uh, if you look at it, my little Bible shows me that is citing back to a proverb that is talking about 
treating your enemy with kindness and loving your enemies. And the idea of heaping burning coals on someone's head, in the proverb it says to heap burning coals on his head of shame. They'll feel a shame, almost like, why is this person being so nice to me when I wronged them? And all of a sudden, it's this conviction that comes over them, uh, is the image that, like, it's this really weird, why are you being nice to me? You shouldn't be because I was kind of a jerk to you idea of conviction that comes up. So that's where that comes from. But this whole last part here kind of shows us that as much as possible, we are called to love our enemies. That's not easy, God. But he calls us to surprise the world with his grace. Isn't that a beautiful calling as a Christian? To surprise the world with his grace. Because we know that's not the norm these days. But looking at this whole passage, it kind of seems more like a strong encouragement, but not necessarily a command, right? I mean, notice some of the language here. We know forgiveness is a command, but this, it just seems strongly encouraged. It starts with, if it is possible, which tells us sometimes it may not be possible to live at peace with others. Perhaps the person who hurt you is no longer around. Maybe it happened years ago and you've lost contact, you don't know where they are. Maybe it's someone who has since deceased. Or perhaps because of the circumstances surrounding the cause of your hurt, of the divide, it would not be safe for you to re-engage with that individual. Perhaps it's not possible. But if it is possible, then he goes on to say, as far as it depends on you, which makes it clear there are two parties involved with the work of reconciliation, isn't there? Forgiveness does not depend on the other, but reconciliation involves two parties. There are times, for instance, when the other person may never even realize that they wronged you in the first place, and you've been carrying this grudge, and you've been angry about it, and they don't even know they hurt you. They don't, it was a, perhaps an innocent thing that we've maybe carried with us anyway. And quite frankly, to bring it up to them, to explain the hurt, to explain that you have then forgiven them, and then to seek reconciliation— it might actually be unfair to that individual. It may not actually create a pathway to peace. It might actually create a pathway to pain. Now, that's a hard thing to parse out, but that might be the case. If you have forgiven them and the fault was innocent enough, perhaps to live at peace, you leave it unsaid. And we know that to live at peace with some people— It's to remember that while forgiveness itself is unlimited and unconditional, reconciliation, it is limited, and it is conditional based on a few things. Repentance, the other person's willingness to receive your words, and the humility that is present in the process. Repentance, willingness, humility. For instance, if that person has displayed signs of a repentant heart, has given some indication or awareness of what they did, that they may have hurt you in some way, even if it's small, if it's there, some ownership over their actions, then in your prayerful discernment, you kind of deem it sincere. By all means, you should seek reconciliation with that person as far as it is up to you. Jesus says in Luke 17, Watch yourselves. If your brother or your sister sins against you, rebuke them. 
That is, you call them out. You don't let wrongs come to you unchallenged. And if they repent, this is Jesus talking, he's talking true repentance, not just the sorry, but true repentance, then you forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times they come back to you earnestly saying, I repent, you must forgive them. But then we also know, Jesus talks about in Matthew 18, that if someone wrongs you and you bring up to them how you were wronged, and they listen, well, we know there's a path forward for forgiveness and also perhaps reconciliation. But he then instructs, if they do not listen, and you even bring in wise counsel, one or other, or two others, he uses the example of elders in the church, to help navigate the situation with that person, then Jesus instructs us to treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Anyone know how to treat a pagan or a tax collector? It's weird language. What that means is you distance yourself from them a bit. It doesn't mean necessarily that you banish them and you remove yourself entirely from them. We know Jesus ate with tax collectors. He was still friends of tax collectors. But it does mean you don't give them the same trust and access that you would another brother and sister in Christ that you are at peace with. And then our final verse to help us try and wrap our head around this idea, it's 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. through This is where we can deduce that there are some instances that it is very clear we likely should not seek reconciliation. Mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Framing this around our current day and age and our relationships and the concept of forgiveness and how we go about that and the reconciling work we need to do. When people are abusive, when they're out of control, when they're dangerous emotionally, physically, and spiritually, we want to have nothing to do with such people. We trust them to God, but we don't re-engage when it is of that nature. So in general, do we seek reconciliation? The answer is, of course, it depends. It depends. Do we seek forgiveness? Always. If at all possible, as far as it is up to you, we seek reconciliation. We seek to live at peace with those around us. We all know that broken relationships are not God's design. That's not his desire for us. So if it is at all possible, we pursue it. But if it is not possible or it is not safe, we may never reconcile that relationship, but we are still called to forgive. Because at the heart of it, the beauty of forgiveness is that even if the other person is never sorry for what they did, even if they never repent for the wrongdoing, even if they don't even know that they wronged you, forgiveness is a gift to yourself. It frees you from their power over you. 
So if it is possible, as far as it is up to you, live at peace with everyone. And where it is not possible, and where it is not up to you, we release that person to God who will deal with them appropriately. I can't give you a formula that you have to follow. Uh, y equals mx plus b or something. That's an equation. I'm talking a lot about math for someone who didn't do so good in it. And I know it shows. I can't give you a formula. Just this simple guidance. But you have the Holy Spirit present with you. You earnestly pray and ask the Spirit to guide you. He will confirm for you where you need to press forward, convict where you need to reconcile, and also give you wisdom on when to hold back. Ask him for that continuously. He will grant you that. Whenever it's possible and safe, we also know there's nothing sweeter than a relationship restored. It's nothing sweeter. We know this because we're living examples of the reconciling work of Jesus Christ who came and made things right. We live in that truth and that peace every day. When brokenness is made whole again, the heavens rejoice, for that is the kingdom breaking through here on earth. And since we're called to be like Jesus, we will seek to live at peace. We will do this hard and challenging and good work to bring his peace each day as we take up his very ministry of reconciliation as his ambassadors and of his love and forgiveness offered to all. And one final word before we dive into our challenge for the week. Throughout this, perhaps you've been just like, I don't feel forgiving towards this person yet. I don't feel, I can't feel this idea of forgiveness coming to fruition with this person. Truth is that forgiveness is both an attitude, but it's also an action. Okay? Seeking reconciliation, it might be the fuel to finalize that process for you. But even if not, even if you're finding it difficult to feel forgiving of someone who hurt you, or to make that first step towards seeking reconciliation, my encouragement is to try to respond then with action instead of the feeling. A lot of times we feel like we have to muster it up and then we act. Sometimes we may want to respond with kind actions because oftentimes right actions lead to right feelings. That means maybe writing a card to that person that you have severed communication with. That might be simply acknowledging them and their presence in your life instead of ignoring them like you want to because of the pain in your life. Oftentimes, right actions will lead to right feelings. Okay, final thing, our challenge. You guys like these challenges, huh? Putting our faith into practice and action. I like it. This week... So the relationship audit. These are pretty simple. You probably can like figure out what they're going to be. You assess the relationships in your life that you've already identified where the hurt is and the forgiveness that needs to happen. And then you prayerfully discern if reconciliation is appropriate for that relationship. Do you feel that? As you sit there, do you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit being like, oh, I don't want to talk to that person, but I know I need to. Or do you feel bubbling up within you? There is no way that would be safe or wise at this point in time. 
Pray, ask God to lead and guide. He will prepare you for ultimately when you engage in that good work. But also this. We're going to talk more about this. The other side of forgiveness we haven't talked a lot about of where we may need to ask others for forgiveness. None of us get out of this world without unfortunately hurting others. So we want to start to identify, where do I need to ask others for forgiveness? Some wrong I've done in the past, and I need to make peace because of the wrongdoing I've done. And the same thing, ask God to lead and guide and prepare you for when you ultimately engage in that work. And then just a general question, in all areas of your life, how might you better seek to live at peace with your neighbor? Maybe you're not in the throes of having to do any kind of forgiving work right now, and we celebrate that with you. But how can we better live at peace with those around us? What does it look like for us to live at peace? For some, it's to forgive and let it go. For some, it's to forgive and re-engage in that relationship. For some, it's to ask others for forgiveness. And for some, it's to accept that God has forgiven you. As far as it is dependent on you, do what you need to do to live into our calling as a forgiven and forgiving people. We do this not as perfect people, but as broken people, made whole by the one who is perfect and who loves you so dearly that when he looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees his beloved child. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ, whose love for us is as high as the heavens. Amen. Why don't we pray together? God, this Easter season, we reflect on that work you've done. Every single Sunday we get together, every single day, for we are Easter people, Lord, who live on this side of the resurrection and that good news that you came and gave us new life. And it's easy for the world sometimes to look at Christianity and say, you know, God, why, 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 are, why is there sin and why do you punish sin in people? But when we parse out your beauty and your glory and your holiness— And we see that you took that punishment on yourself. We see that you are love. That's who you are. It's what you do. That's why you've done all of this. That's why you've engaged in this relationship with your people who have wronged you time and time again. So we're humbled. We open our hearts up to your love and we say thank you. So God, as we're doing this work on forgiveness, we appreciate and sincerely love how gracious and merciful you are to us. But we also don't want to stay here, Lord. We long to take steps forward in this journey. So continue to guide us, Lord. Reveal the next step you will have us take and give us the courage of faith to trust you and to take that step. We long to live at peace with those that you have placed around us, Lord. And so where there is no peace, where there is disharmony, we pray for your peace to be made real here. We know that's what you long for. We pray that you make it so and make the way forward. You're so good to us, God. You love us so much, and so we respond in love back to you. Embolden us this week to go and share that love, Father. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.